Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also to help them to succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we'll be talking to Kaylee Seawright, who is an aeromechanics structural analyst. Kaylee will be talking about her career journey and will provide some great advice to our listeners on how they should never give up on their dreams, no matter how people may perceive you. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. I'm a licensed engineer at DCI Engineers, practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's degree in structural engineering from UC San Diego. And I'm your co-host, Alexis Clark. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas and graduated with a degree in civil engineering from UT Austin. I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager of our chemical anchoring portfolio in the U.S. and Canada. Now, I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, Kaylee Seawright. Kaylee is a graduate of Clemson University, where she received both her bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering and served as the 2013 student body president. After an adventure as a performer at Walt Disney World, yes, Walt Disney World, she joined the Boeing Research and Technology team in Charleston, South Carolina, where she's been for over five years. Most of her time at Boeing has been supporting Boeing Defense, Space, and Security, and NASA on the structural development of the CST-100 Starliner, the Space Launch System, and the Navy's MQ-25 program. One of her favorite experiences was working on the 787 manufacturing floor as a mid-body mechanic. She has certifications from MIT in systems engineering management and additive manufacturing, and has completed several Dale Carnegie and John Maxwell programs. Her current mantra is, it's okay not to know what's next, as long as you always know the woman you want to become. Kaylee, I love that mantra, and I'm excited to get you on here right now. Kaylee, welcome to the Structural Engineering Channel. Hey, Alexis. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. So we just introduced you and told quite a bit about your really dynamic background. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do on a daily basis in your job at Boeing? So as you mentioned, I'm in research and technology, and I'm an aeromechanics structural analysis engineer. My job, the way I describe it to an elementary school student, is I make sure all of our structures are strong enough for all of the forces that are felt on them. So that means I do a lot of static analysis uh, with multiple load cases, depending on what structure I'm analyzing. Uh, I get a little bit into fatigue and damage tolerance. Depending on the type of analysis I'm running, I might do some loads and dynamics on acoustic type analysis. So for example, I supported the space launch system, which is a rocket. Uh, So that was a lot of acoustic loads, more of a loads and dynamics type of analysis. Um, Being in research and technology, part of what I do is more research and development oriented. So I've worked with very blank canvases on our company's next two commercial aircrafts that are coming down the line. And so working on a blank canvas, we did some trade optimization studies on different types of wing designs for what are the most optimized for performance, for weight, for based on materials, cost savings, et cetera. So that's an example of research, other research type jobs. 
research and additive manufacturing, expanding the types of metals we use, pushing the limits on what types of parts we can manufacture additively. We've researched what it might look like to additively manufacture more load-bearing type parts. Because with our company right now, a lot of the additive parts are very much don't carry any flight loads. They'd be like duct vents in the airplane, armrest, for example. Um, So what it might look like to go through and get something certified and regulated for additive manufacturing, which is completely new. So those are examples of more research that I might do. But besides that, I also get to support programs, mainly development programs, taking it from an idea to manufacturing. And so some of those programs, I mentioned the Space Launch System, uh, the CST-100 Starliner, which is a space capsule, which is in a race right now with SpaceX Dragon X to commercialize space and take American astronauts back to space. So I worked on the structural development and sizing of those parts. So working side by side with designers on what that final design will look like. Have also supported the 787 program in Charleston, working on repair analysis. And I was also a mechanic for about six months, getting some experience, boots on the ground, building some airplanes. So what's fun about my job is that daily basis, there's the structural analysis stays the same. I'm doing that static analysis and proving those structures are strong, but I'm getting to do it on a lot of different types of products and programs and even more research-oriented, which I love. It keeps things fresh and new and exciting. So I'm really curious about kind of like the workflow in the aerospace industry. Could you go into a little more about that? Let's say like if you need to do a product or a new system, like you guys just sketch it up and then go to straight to finite element analysis, or do you do a lot of hand calcs? What kind of is the process or the workflow for getting something out like that? A lot of the times we start historically, right? So what did something look like in the past? How can we make that better? It's very rare that you start out with a completely blank canvas, right? Especially in aerospace, it's can be a lot more complicated, don't hate me for saying that, than buildings because of the materials and the different types of loading that you're experiencing. It's not as consistent as with buildings. The basis of a lot of designs is oftentimes historical data. And then it's kind of more optimized based on updated products. So the 787, for example, is the first composite commercial airplane. And so it was the first of its type. Having a new material changed a lot of the way that things are designed. But yeah, there's optimization that goes into it to determine the best geometry, dimensions, layups for composites, cost, looking at manufacturing. How is this thing going to go together? There are a lot of pieces involved in putting it together. And then working, so you start with a very simple global model, and then you get more detailed as the timeline goes closer to this thing being in production. And then that's when you get a lot more designers and analysts pulling every single piece together, analyzing every single detail, every down to every single fastener sometimes, depending on the program and the structure. And then, yeah, finite element models, a lot of hand calcs, You know, if you put in trash to a finite element model, what you get out is trash. 
So your hand counts have to validate everything. And then that shows the strength of the model. And then it moves into, you know, how are we going to put this thing together? It goes into testing, um, possible redesigns after results of those, and then structural validation. So every single new product that we have has to be validated by whoever's regulating us. So commercial airplanes, the FAA. So for the 787, they did a whole entire wing that was never going to be used just to do a structural fail test. So they bent it until it broke to see at what point it broke and if it had held the load that it was designed to and analyzed to. And it did, thankfully. So our regulators gave us the thumbs up for flight. So testing, and then it moves into production, where then they have several other test flights with everything together. And then the regulators look at every single plane that we make before it flies. And then we're good for delivery. So it's a long production timeline. You know, we're not making, like in the automotive industry, a new car every year. We make a new airplane like once a decade. (laughs) So it's a long development and design cycle. That's for sure. That is so fascinating. I'm really glad that you walked us through that. And I think it's really interesting because we've seen a very common theme in the past of different episodes, regardless of our speaker. And our guests are continuously telling us that you should be doing hand calculations and your own engineering analysis to validate all of the information we're pulling out of these really complex, dynamic, like for example, FEA, finite element analysis systems. And I find it no different that we're designing completely different structures, but still you have to know the information you're putting into the system and what the solution or whatever the information is being spit back out to you. I love that phrase, junk in, junk out. We just have to be cognizant as structural engineers to be checking our work and being able to interpret that what is coming out makes sense and is something that we want to apply to the design. Yeah. The amount of data that goes into those finite element models, if you don't validate it with hand calcs, it can be way too overwhelming to understand and process yourself. Some structures we're looking at have several thousand load cases. You can't process that all. And so you have to have those hand calcs to to validate it. I do have one question. So I also work for a manufacturer and I kind of get a little bit geeky when it comes to uh, testing. You mentioned that you were doing a failure test of a wing. I work on anchors at Hilti and we do all different types of tests, but I'm imagining for a wing, you're probably not just doing a simple load test. You're probably doing cyclical or dynamic testing. Is that right? Oh yeah. Just to clarify, I wasn't involved in that. That was before I started working. So it took place, but I was not there. Uh, So I did not see the testing myself, but they are very complicated tests. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's really neat. Yeah, you're so welcome. And there's a video on YouTube too. You'll have to look it up if you just search for 787 wing stress test and watch the video. It's a really cool video. Yeah, that one's really cool. Uh, I also had another question just out of my curiosity. So for typical building design, we deal with a lot of uh, building codes. Is there anything like that with um, aerospace? I imagine there would be some type of guidelines or is it just prove it for a test and just say that's it? Oh my goodness, so many guidelines and regulations with the FAA who oversees and checks our work and works with us, being sure that those guidelines are are up to date. So a lot. 
I think the same thing for us. There's our building codes, but I guess in terms of getting away with like creative stuff, we do have like some other ways like get around the code with performance-based design or more in-depth analysis. But I think that's pretty cool how you guys do test it eventually. I think that's one of the cool things about that. I think in building design, there are tests, but you know, you're building when it's actually built, you don't really get to test it unless like an earthquake happens or big wind events happen. So that's really cool to, that you guys actually do test like at least um, a model of your design. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it kind of stinks that testing so expensive because that's definitely the funnest part. I think every engineer looks forward to when they get to be involved with the test. So you have a really interesting bio and I just wanted to touch on that. So you were the 2013 student body president at Clemson. You don't often hear that of engineers holding that type of position. Can you tell us more about it and how you obtained that? It's a bit of a long story. When I started at Clemson, I was just so overwhelmed with everything that there was to do, all of the opportunities to get involved on campus. And I think that goes back to what I experienced in high school. So uh, in high school, I was a pretty high-performing student. I knew that I was interested in engineering, but my high school didn't offer AP classes that aligned with my future engineering degree wherever I decided to go to college. So I actually drove 30 minutes every day during my lunch break to across town to the other high school in our city to be able to take an AP physics class and take those classes to get into the best college that I could. So when I started at Clemson, all of the student organizations, all of the people there were to meet and connect with with so many different stories and experiences, I was overwhelmed in the best way possible. Uh, In freshman and sophomore year, I always made my studies a very big priority, but I was in so many student organizations, so much that I spread myself thin, but I learned a lesson moving into junior and senior year, which is that I really needed to focus on where my passions lied. And I loved student government. So I had served on several boards, especially related to engineering, because there were far fewer engineers who were interested in those sort of student organizations. So I served on a board with the deans of all of the colleges of engineering, and I would share student opinions, and I would give ideas for the future I was involved in like interviews with the deans. And so I got very connected with Clemson's administration, but then also in other areas through student organizations. By the time junior year rolled around, I was super involved in our student senate. And I had kind of thought about running for a student body position, but it didn't cross my mind so much until people started coming up to me and saying, when you run, can I be your vice president? So I was very shocked by that, but it really got my gears turning. And I was thinking like, can I handle this? That position by itself is almost like a full-time job on its own. So senior year was very busy. I did run and I did get elected and it was an incredible experience. One of the best years of my life, for sure, nonstop, but such a great experience. And yeah, I think I might be one of two student body presidents at Clemson that majored in engineering. So definitely not very common, but I think my wide variety of interest is the biggest thing that led me to serving in that role. 
So Kaylee, EMI originally found you through an article on a website called Vision Bomb that talked about um, how you and many others feel like or have been told that they don't look like an engineer. And I totally feel you there. As a six foot tall blonde, I often stick out like a sore thumb myself. And I've had some situations in which other people made me feel as though I didn't belong. But I want to share one special quote that you have there. And it says, when you're told every single day, wow, you don't look like an engineer, how do you not take that to heart? Over time, it affected my sense of belonging. I wore fewer colors, acted more masculine than I normally would have, and I wasn't being my authentic self at work. Can you share with us a little bit about the effect this had on your journey throughout engineering? And what are some ways that people can take your journey and be more authentic earlier in their career? I love that question. So the effect that it had on my career, I'd say the biggest effect is just not feeling like you belong. The biggest thing that I think was important for me to learn is that it's not that I didn't belong. That was something I was putting on myself. Because like you said in my quote, when people tell you, wow, you don't look like an engineer and you just hear that over and over and over again, you don't look like an engineer. Like you start to believe it yourself, right? I don't look like an engineer and maybe that means that I don't belong here. And so when you feel like you don't belong, you start kind of trying to change who you are to fit in better. And we mentioned like those just funny stereotypes with pocket protectors. But I mean, there are stereotypes about what an engineer is. And it's not this me, five foot tall blonde girl who whose favorite color is pink and purple walking across the manufacturing floor, right? So I started changing who I was and, you know, the colors that I wear, that's not what's most important, but it is a way that you express yourself and you should never change the way that you express yourself just in trying to fit in. I'd say that the biggest impact it had is me feeling like I needed to prove myself. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to prove yourself, but if you're doing it for other people and not for yourself, that's where you go wrong. So ways that people can be more authentic in when they feel like they don't belong like this is reminding yourself what you want, right? So work hard not to prove yourself. Work hard to learn all that you can to be better than you were yesterday. That's a huge thing that, you know, I still have to remind myself of when I look around and I'm the only woman in a room I'm there for a reason and the unique things that I bring to the table are why it's important that I am there. I just think it is, it's so important, especially for our younger listeners who are feeling as though, you know, maybe they're feeling awkward in finding a place in the engineering community, or they're still trying to figure out how they can bring their authentic self to work or to study or whatever they're doing. And any little reminders that you give yourself daily or a, you know and a little mantra to share anything like that is always so helpful for each of us to internalize and remember hey someone else has been in these shoes before and they got through it and they're kicking ass now and I can do that too yes that's so true and so much to being a good engineer is about creativity and if you're bringing the same thing from every single person who's at the table if they're bringing the same type of personality the same thoughts, the same experiences, then you're not going to have that creativity that you need in, in a really innovative technical engineering role. And I think that's so important to keep in mind. Yeah. And I think that to follow up on that, what, I think what's really cool is that not just for women, but also minorities, 
at, in the structural engineering industry, it's probably still the majority, you know, your typical white males. But I think what's helping that out is seeing more women in the structural engineering industry, seeing more minorities in the structural engineering industry. And I think that's one way, at least in social media and in the public's eyes, the more they see people that are engineers, that are being proud of engineers, that aren't your stereotypical type of engineers. I think that's what really helps the profession. And it also brings it more to um, other people that can identify. So if you're not that nerdy, stereotypical type, but you see an engineer that's like that, you can connect with them more. And I think that all starts with engineers like yourself that put yourself out there, that do a blog post, that make it public that you are an engineer. And that makes it a lot more accessible for people to connect with you that aren't necessarily that stereotype. So that's, I think that's what's really cool about it is that putting yourself out there and being seen. And I think that really helps people because it's like, oh, she's doing it. I can do it too. Yeah, I think you hit it spot on, Matt. I mean, it's so hard to see yourself somewhere if you've never seen someone like you in that same position, right? I think you hit it spot on there, which is why I love opportunities like this to get involved and to show younger girls that if this is something that they are interested in, then they can do it too. You know, just inspiring that confidence is so important. I had a question about that too, because I wanted to ask you this later, but since you brought it up, you're saying yes to opportunities and finding a way to make those opportunities work versus finding excuses because it's out of your comfort zone. Could you go a little more in depth about that and how that's you know affected your career? So finding opportunities and getting out of your comfort zone. I was not okay with that at first. I mean, when I first started out in, in a manufacturing environment, it was so intimidating to me to walk out on the floor and The biggest way that I found confidence in that was when I became a mechanic. I was a mechanic my second year with my company and did it for six months. And I can't tell you the fear I had the night before I was about to wake up at 4 a.m. with my steel toe boots and pop out there on the manufacturing floor to drill some holes, right? Seems silly, but I was filled with such fear. And I think it goes back to just feeling like I didn't belong there. But by the end of that six months, the team that I was on, they were like my family. And still three years later, I go and try to have lunch with them at least once a month. I learned so much. And I think the biggest thing that I took away was feeling more confident about being somewhere that makes you uncomfortable. And now I can say wholeheartedly that I pursue opportunities that put me out of my comfort zone because those are the places that you grow the most and you learn the most and that are the most rewarding in your career when you're reflecting back on your experiences. And it keeps things fun, right? Like if you don't have things that are pushing you and challenging you and making you a little bit uncomfortable, then you know you're just not learning as much. I definitely agree with that. I mean, there's a lot of things outside of engineer's comfort zone. And that's something that I learned, you know, getting out of my comfort zone, getting into public speaking, uh, doing a YouTube channel, all those things are definitely, hey, these are out of my comfort zone. But that's definitely when you grow the most, just like you said. And I think that can definitely help you out in your career as well by developing more soft skills, uh, getting your network in place. I think that's really great. 
Another way that this just crossed my mind when you mentioned this outside of engineering, like travel, going somewhere abroad where you don't speak the language, like it's uncomfortable, but you learn so much too, that you take back about different cultures and especially in such a global world that we're in right now. That's just another really great example of how good it can be to get out of your comfort zone. You know, the space that you're in every single day and see and learn new things. It doesn't matter what the change in environment is, whether it's culture or something technical or, you know, a new technical um, atmosphere you're looking at, or if it's just trying something new or being on a new team that you don't have that experience with. It's terrifying, but it's great. I have a reminder because we all like to settle in the comfort zone. We're humans. We're creatures of habit in that terrible way. And I have a reminder on my desk and it shows a little black sphere and it says, this is your comfort zone. And then it has a big wide world with arms out and it says, this is where the magic happens. And I have to remind myself of that. Yes. I love that. It's a good little visualization to have. Oh yeah. Remember that's where you grow and growing pains hurt, but they also make you stronger and bigger and more agile. One of the most interesting parts of your bio that I just can't gloss over is that you spent time as a Disney performer, which is a long-term dream of mine. Can you tell us about that? I mean, as we were just discussing a few minutes ago, my senior year at Clemson was slam-packed. So senior design projects, student body president, finishing up mechanical engineering. And I had not really started applying and interviewing anywhere for my career. So I knew, or I had kind of started, but then I realized how much time it really takes to dedicate yourself. And I didn't want to just do something halfway for a very important decision. So when I graduated, I didn't know where I was going. I moved home for less than a week, (laughs) was bored to death, was looking all over for jobs and opportunities and was getting my resume and cover letters ready and applying to multiple different jobs. And I was looking at Imagineering at Disney. And on the careers webpage, they also had information about this audition, which was the next day. And I fit that there were height requirements for the audition. It was just a general character performer audition. So it wasn't very specific, but they did have height. So you had to meet. And I fell within the range and I need to make money. Like I want to do something during this time. And I'd also heard that to get engineering job at Disney, sometimes you just have to get your foot in the door first. I had been reading that a lot of Imagineers actually started in the parks. So this was halfway me saying, okay, I just need to do something. And I love performing and I grew up dancing and doing theater and I hadn't done it in years and probably wasn't going to do it after I started my career. So half of it was that. And then the other half was, hey, maybe this could lead to an engineering opportunity at Disney. So I packed my bags the next morning and I drove to Orlando for the audition and actually went through two auditions. I went, I made it to the end of the first audition and then they asked me to stay because they thought that I might be a good fit for a face character. So the first audition was for fur characters. So um, Mickey, Minnie, Daisy, Donald you know, goofy, those type of characters. And they asked me to stay for a face character. So being five feet tall, like I'm not talking about the princesses here. There was a fairy that they had a need for. And so I stayed for a second audition and then drove back the next day. And at the end of the audition, they were very 
they like would not give you any information at all. They were basically like, we will consider you. Thank you. <laughs> so I laughed and literally, I think this was like a Thursday. And I think I heard back like the next day and then moved to Orlando that weekend and started two days later. I graduated, was at home for less than a week and was already starting driving to Orlando to start training to be a performer. I was there from June to January, so almost half a year. And so I was working full time as a performer and coming home every night and doing my getting ready for applications. And I had started interviews during that time. Yeah. And at that time, Disney really wasn't hiring mechanical engineers, even internally. So there really, there were engineering opportunities, but nothing that aligned with my interest. And I felt like if I started and for example, I could have done like an industrial engineering. There were a few like environmental engineering. I think it was just opportunities that would have taken me off the path that I wanted to be on. And so I felt like there were more exciting opportunities elsewhere. And aerospace is really cool. So that was just my little post-college adventure before I started my Sometimes those things that are just meant for you happen in a really quick way and you just got to roll with it. I have to admit, I was a little nervous to ask you about it because I wanted to be a Disney character and I wanted to be Alice. And they told me that because of the height restrictions, I couldn't be a part of it. So I'm glad someone put the bill, but I did offer, I said, you know, there's a tall Alice and there's a small Alice on either side of the mushroom. So you could just hire me as the tall one. It sounds like you and I could make this a dynamic duo kind of thing. Two peas in a pod. I know. The Disney lingo is hang out with. I probably could have hung out with Alice. The whole time I was there, I was hanging out with Tinkerbell. But yeah, Alice and Tinkerbell are like the exact same profile. They're very similar characters. So for something like that, let's say, right, a Disney performer, were there any transferable skills that you took from that position and then going on to your engineering? I'm thinking like there's probably like soft skills or something that that you could transfer over. Funny enough, when I was interviewing places, I did not tell them what I was doing. I just didn't mention it. So I wasn't lying, right? But I wasn't sure. I just had this assumption that these like serious engineers wouldn't take me seriously if I told them that I was currently at Walt Disney World being a performer, right? So when I was interviewing, I just mentioned that I just graduated in May in mechanical engineering, and that's all. So I just didn't say anything about what I was currently doing. And I started and still like, didn't say anything. And then I think people like added me on Facebook or something and found out what I had been doing for just a few months prior and thought it was so cool. And so this thing that like I'd been hiding because I wasn't sure what people would think of me or that they wouldn't take me seriously ended up being something that kind of made me stand out. So I didn't realize it then, but there are so many skills that are transferable. This sounds kind of silly, but number one is communication. The operations behind Disney are incredible and everything is so timed. Like you learn such discipline and communication skills working there. And again, this probably sounds extra silly, but especially the fur characters, right? They don't speak to the guests that they're interacting with. So all communication is through animation and storytelling through animation. And 
I feel like I got better at my verbal communication by learning to animate and tell stories without communication in that way. And with that, you communicate. Disney has so many people from all over the world speaking so many different languages. It's such a blending pot. So you don't even understand what the people who are visiting you are saying, but you're communicating with them no matter. And so that was such a cool thing to learn. And I learned so much about different cultures having worked at Disney. So that's a really big thing. And then also the company that I work for is a huge company. Disney is a huge company. And so there's a lot to be learned about navigating the complexities and all of the different levels of a big company too. If you'd asked me that question in the first year or two, I had started engineering. I probably wouldn't have known the answer because for whatever reason, I was like a little bit embarrassed to say that I had done this. But there are so many things that I took from that experience and still use today and apply that have made me a better engineer, I think. Like you said, communication really is a big part because what I tell uh, younger engineers that are trying to get their first position you can't really make yourself stand out by being technical because everyone, every engineer by default is technical. But if you can show them the communication skills by how well you speak, by how well you communicate and, you know, showing the leadership potential and that you can work with different teams and that you're motivated. I think that's one way to really stand out as an engineer when you're trying to look for your first position. And I'm pretty sure that's helped you out maybe unconsciously, but like you said, you're, you're well-spoken and um, you're easy to communicate with. And that, for us, at least, you know, when I'm looking for like interns or whatnot, that's what really helps them stand out from um, the rest of the crowd. I would add that to any of our listeners who are thinking, man, I've never worked at Disney before. What will I come up with that sounds really cool? It may not be quite as exciting as uh, working at Disney, but even, I mean, I, you know, was a waitress and a, a bartender throughout most of college to make money. And the skills that you learn, even in something like that, or, you know, as a hostess or, in any situation where you're making money and you're learning to work with others in a business, all of those communication skills that you learn between yourself and a client or yourself and a coworker, even if it seems as unsexy as waiting tables, it's very useful in your career. And even those resources, even including that in a job interview, is really going to put you ahead of your peers who have solely been an outstanding student because you bring an entirely different element which is number one, real experience in the working place. And number two, the ability to communicate with others. Kaylee, our listeners are mostly engineers working on structural projects. Can you share with them any career advice that you think might be helpful in their career journey? Most importantly, in sense of curiosity and continuous learning, right? So the foundations of structural engineering will probably forever be the same. We can reference these 2D drawings from like the 1920s and they're still applicable to our fancy 3D CAD models that we're using, but there are a lot of things that have changed. And so that continuous learning is so important as we're moving towards model-based engineering with new types of materials that are being developed. There's so much to learn. So keep seeking training opportunities to learn. And I'm between five and 10 years in my career now, which is hard to believe. But I really hope that when I'm 20, 30 years into my career, that I'm still looking for ways 
to keep learning, whether that's like a certificate program or a training that might seem like it's too simple for me. I never want to seem like I know everything or that I'm above learning more. And so with that, just always questioning why and being driven by a sense of curiosity, I think is so important to take with you throughout your career. Is an interesting point that we read in one of your talking points, and that was your fear of engineering being glamorized for women. Can you elaborate on what that means and how can practicing engineers out in the field today ensure that this doesn't happen for the younger generation? Giving you a little bit of background on where that thought came from, I was doing a presentation to a group of structural engineers and my company where vice president was there and he came up to me after. He said, Kaylee, I love what you're sharing and the work you've done. And he said, I want to set up time to talk with you about your experience being a woman here and making sure that we're providing everything that we can. And I want to learn if there are ways that we can make the environment better. And I was kind of thrown off by this because I'm someone who can be very happy-go-lucky too and just like not even notice if things start going not right. But so when we sat down to meet, he shared a really interesting statistic with me from ASME, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. So there was a peak of mechanical women in mechanical engineering. So I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, so these might not be spot on, but let's say the peak was like 13% three years ago. So 13% of the mechanical engineering population were female three years ago. That line started trending down. And most recently when we were meeting, it was down at like 10 and a half, 11%. So it didn't seem like it was just a 1% drop. Like it was just, it seemed like it was starting to trend lower. And he said, why do you think that might be? And it really got my gears turning. And I think recently in the past, you know, five years or so, there's been a big push to recruit women into engineering, which I think is awesome. I'm so behind that. But at the same time, I don't want to glamorize something and then women get into it and have like their first experience with discrimination or feeling like they don't fit in, like that sense of belonging that can sometimes be lacking, especially when you're just starting out. And then realize, man, this isn't what I thought it was, or this isn't what it was presented to me, and then change their career path early on. I could list out a handful of women who in their first five years starting in engineering have changed their career paths to more business oriented. And you know, it goes both ways. There are also people who decide to become interested in engineering, right? But there has been a peak in this data that we were looking at. And so it just started getting my gears turning about why that might be. And so that's kind of where that fear came from. I never want to encourage women to get into this field just for the sake of doing so. I want them to like truly be interested themselves and also know that <laughs> we're still a very big minority. There are a lot of disciplines, you know, like biomedical, civil that have much higher percentages. But yeah, I mean, mechanical engineering is just above 10%. And, you know, it differs company, company, discipline to discipline. But 
I also want to talk about the challenges along with how great it is to be an engineer. I definitely get that. So you're not trying to just attract people for the sake of getting the numbers up. You actually want people here who, um, regardless of their gender or ethnicity or whoever else are here for the real reasons. And so that we actually have a sustained diversity throughout the profession and not just a blip on the radar because we did a really good job recruiting without retaining. Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, since I started getting involved in those conversations about how we can make our company the best place for women to work, there are so many ways that we can make it better, you know, really supporting good maternity leaves, being sure that when women do come back to work, that they're supported with mother's rooms, a little bit more flexibility if they need to leave early for daycare. It's just so important, especially during big life transitions to make it as easy and transferable as possible to continue working during these times where you see dips in women leaving their careers and specifically engineering. Once we get them there, we have to keep them. And that means having some of the infrastructure to make sure that everyone can be there, bring their authentic self to work and to their home life and everything else. I totally get it. That's exactly right. Kaylee, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your fantastic insights with us. This is great advice. And I think there's a lot of really good reminders and little tidbits that we can each take back to our individual day that's going to help our listeners a lot. So where can our listeners find more of you? Thanks, Lexis and Matt. This has been a lot of fun. You can connect with me via LinkedIn. Kaylee Seawright is my name or Instagram. I'm at Kaylee S-E-A. So K-A-Y. L-E-Y-S-E-A. Those are the two platforms that I use most often to connect with folks. So you're welcome to connect with me that way. Wonderful. Thanks, Kaylee. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 25, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned throughout this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember, you can find any COVID-19 coronavirus news related to engineering projects, conferences, events, and so on at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org slash COVID-19, C-O-V-I-D-1-9. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. 